I wasn't always an upfront kind of a guy. I uh, really, growing up as a kid, was much more preferred to be in the wings and to just do my own little creative thing by myself. And it wasn't until I started playing guitar that the Lord kind of thrust me into uh, kind of more of an upfront type of life. And I would, was asked in my home church, I remember, to sing to play and my guitar and I can remember boy those first times just being so nervous that my fingers I couldn't even uh, keep them on the strings and my, my voice was so warbly that I couldn't sing and it's, it, it amazes me that I ever got past those first few experiences into thinking that maybe this was something a direction that God wanted me to go and the way I eventually got over the the stage fright was to spend so much time practicing that whenever I would get up, I had enough confidence in my ability that I wouldn't worry so much about what people thought about me. And here's the twisted kind of thinking that I developed, was that if somebody ever said something negative about how I sang or how I played, I would just attribute it to their ignorance because I had prepared so well that if anybody said anything negative, I felt they were just wrong. Isn't that sad? I tried to mask uh, a low self-confidence, a low self-esteem with ego, which incidentally is basically the same problem. Because you're so concerned about how you're going to be perceived by other people that you will you'll have a, a false confidence in yourself and just pretend that everybody else is out to lunch. I needed the approval of people growing up, from childhood friends and puppy loves gone wrong, from that all the way to the applause of a thousand people in the audience. When people liked me, I liked me. When people didn't like me, especially my family, then uh, I didn't like me. I remember after I won a, a scholarship, a music scholarship, to a college, I was so excited. It, what, what excited me more than winning the scholarship was telling my dad that I had won the scholarship. Because in my mind, I was thinking, he is going to be so proud of me because of this. And I also remember how down I was after I finished college with a music degree called my dad up, I've got this music degree, and I'll never forget what he said. I could, I could take you right where I was over at the university, there by that pool hall down by the thing at the very bottom. What was that thing called? The lounge? Rock bottom lounge or something? Standing right there at the phone, and I remember him saying, he said, so what are you going to do now? Get a job mowing yards? And I just stood there and I thought, wow. The sad part is that's about all you can do with a music degree. <laughs> There's an element of truth in it. But still, I was just like, I was just crushed that I did not have his acceptance. That I had gone through this, all this misery. And all I could do was mow yards. 
When I got to seminary, it helped some in that I was able to study the book of Romans and understood Romans chapter 6 for the first time in my life, and that I was identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. That it really didn't matter what everybody else thought about me because what God thought about me was that he saw me as pure as he sees his son Jesus. That when Jesus died, I died. When Jesus was raised, I was raised. That I am now able to walk in that kind of a resurrection life. And that helped. And then I got married. And I realized that I actually needed more than simply Romans 6. I also needed, I felt, my wife's applause. Um, I needed people. I knew I should just need God. I knew that God loved me. But I also really needed people. I needed people to like me in order for me to like myself. Biblically speaking, this is what's called the fear of man. The fear of man. Uh, we're going to start a new series today. This is going to take us through Christmas. Basically five weeks to look at this issue. We've called it Giants in the Land. And it's basically taken from a passage that we'll look at more in depth next week in Numbers where God sent the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land and said, now go and take it. You can do it. What did they do? They sent the spies in. The spies came back and said, we can't do it. Why? Because there are giants in the land. We are like grasshoppers in their sight. They are huge compared to us. And in a very real sense, we are a lot like those spies as God redeems us and then says, okay, now here's the life I want you to have out among people. And we shrink back in fear saying, no, those people are too big. And we worship and need those, those people as opposed to worshiping and needing God. The people become our idol of choice. The people are bigger to us than the Lord is. And I've shared a little bit about myself, but I think each one of us could probably stand up and say uh, a similar thing, because the fear of man is something that all of us struggle with. If you've ever struggled with peer pressure uh, as, a, as a kid or as a teenager, as a, as a young adult, if you've ever struggled with being a people pleaser, or the term in the counseling office, if you've ever been, is codependent. All of these things basically are another words for the fear of man. Having a fear of man as opposed to a fear of God. You go to the gym, you work out, you get on a great diet, and everybody says, boy, you look great. You're doing a good job. And you feel like, hey, maybe I am. And the, the tendency there is to get applause because you're becoming healthy. When also there's that part of you that is thinking ego. We all struggle with this. Some weeks ago we handed out a survey, remember? Brian asked, what are some of the things that most keep you from sharing your faith? Number one answer, what did he say, is that we are afraid of how we will be perceived by other people. We live with the fear of man. So I'd like for us to look today as we start this series at where this fear of man came from 
and also to begin to look at the solution, which is going to play out all throughout our series. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Genesis means beginning and is the beginning of so many things, not the least of which is the fear of man, which began with sin. But we're going to see this very clearly here in this text. Maybe something that you've not thought of before in this context, but it's there, and we will see it. Genesis 3. I had uh, breakfast just this week with a man who's almost 70 years old, turns 70 next year. Greatly admire the guy. In fact, he's one of my mentors. And he said, you know, Wayne, this week I had to say no to a good friend of mine who asked me if I would get together with his son and talk a little bit about this and about that. And he says, I was just so busy. I just honestly had to tell him, you know, I don't have time. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. And he said, that tore me up that I had to say no. And this isn't the first time that he's shared this with me, that, that he struggles with being a people pleaser, even at 70 years old. See, this is not something that we outgrow. It's something that we can eventually uh, let it diminish more and more. We can mature to where we fear the Lord over fearing man. But I'm, I'm here to say that probably not in the course of five weeks am I or are you going to be able to get over the fear of man. But what we can do is beget, begin to get some tools that will equip us for a lifetime of effort in that way. Genesis 3, um, actually we're going to look at the verse just prior to that, the end of chapter 2, verse 25. Look at Genesis 2, 25 with me, and let's read. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and unashamed. Interesting that those are put together, aren't they? Nakedness and having no shame. All of this prior to the fall, which kind of sets us up for what's going to be happening in the verses that follow. Prior to sin, there was no shame in nakedness, or simply there was no shame. But as chapter 3 opens, the, verses, uh, the first five verses we're not going to read. You're familiar with the story of how the serpent uh, tempted the woman, trying to make her think that God was holding out on her. God says, what, you can't eat from any trees? He says, no, not just this one tree. And the serpent says, well, God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat from this tree, that you're going to be just like God. God's trying to hold you back. And as a result of that lie, look at what happened, starting in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Notice, all three of those things benefit self. Good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, on the surface, it looks like that this verse is saying that they walked around in blissful ignorance for a while that they didn't realize that they were naked. That's not what it means. It's not that the eyes of them were opened and they realized, wow, I don't have any clothes on. 
It says, the eyes of them were opened to see their nakedness now in a different way. As the end of chapter 25 links nakedness with no shame, now as a result of sin, nakedness is now linked with shame or with the fear of being exposed. And it's not so much that, uh, that, that they feared being seen without any clothes, it's that now the gaze saw a deeper nakedness, a nakedness that exposes sin that exposes shame. Prior to sin, they could look in admiration at one another. But now, all they saw was shame. Here begins the fear of man. I couldn't have been probably more than five or six years old, yet I remember it clear as day. It was Halloween. I was Casper, the friendly ghost. About this tall, solid white outfit, little smiley face, cute as could be, walking down the streets, you know, getting my candy back in San Antonio. Remember this one door I came up to? Knocked on the door, the door opened, and, you know, it said my trick-or-treat and held out, held out my bag, and from out of the darkness, this man, I... I'm convinced now as an adult it was a man, but at the time I wasn't sure. This man with this hideous mask came out, totally not caring that I couldn't have been more than five or six years old. And he screamed and got right in my face and scared the living daylights out of me. And I'll never forget looking up in the position, looking up in total terror, and my face just freezing in terror. And I also remember as I was running the other direction, thinking, my mask is still smiling. And so for some reason, as a five or six-year-old, that image stuck with me of the smiling mask and yet the terror and reality behind it as I hauled off down the street. You know, this is actually what we go through every single day, isn't it? At home, a lot of times we'll take the mask off because it's too much work to keep it up, to keep it on, and uh, we'll be ourselves. But when we get out in public, we put on the Casper mask. We put on the smile. And there really is an effort on our part to not expose ourselves, the true self, our true nakedness, as it were, to people. But instead, we'll do our best to, to cover ourselves with fig leaves. Interesting when it says in verse 7 that they knew they were naked, or in other words, they had a view of their shame. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They tried to hide their shame. They tried to cover up their shame with fig leaves. Jim Carrey, the actor, said, If we all acted the way we really felt, four out of eight of us at the dinner table would be sitting there sobbing. You know, research has found that there's at least three situations that we're not ourselves. Uh, 
Here's the top three. One's when you walk into a fancy hotel. You're not yourself. For some reason, you know, we walk a little more graciously and the pinky comes out and all this, you know, feel like we have to fit the surroundings. Fancy hotel. Another one, for some reason, and I have yet to understand this one, is a new car showroom. You don't, you're not yourself in the new car showroom. I don't know why you're trying to put one over on the salesman, but you're not yourself. And finally, the third place, can you guess where the third place is that you're not yourself? Church. Those are the top three, where you're not yourself. Now, why is it of all places that we come in and we're not ourselves? You know, good morning, how you doing? Oh boy, great, never felt better. And inside, we're dying. We got the mask on, everything that we can see, the fig leaves look great. But underneath is shame. Underneath is who we really are. Terror behind the Casper mask. Why is it that here in church, of all places, we, we put on the mask? Well, I think probably one reason is that we, it's here of all places that we're held to a standard of morality. The very standard, in fact, which Adam and Eve failed, being obedient to the Lord. And so it's here of all places that we, that we put on the mask because we don't want to be perceived as ungodly. We don't want to be perceived as unholy. We want to be perceived that everything's right, never felt better. And it's only when in our lives that our, our world gets so out of control that we can no longer hide our shame behind the mask and it blows out and one huge explosion and everybody is totally shocked by it because there's, there's not relationships among us that we allow ourselves to be exposed in some kind of an accountability situation or whatnot. We, we wrestle against that. Because we feel like we have no need to have this kind of accountability. And as a result, we hide behind the mask and we aren't really in fellowship with one another. Adam and Eve became consumed with how they were perceived by others or by each other. And to cover how they were perceived by one another, they covered themselves with fig leaves. But the problem is, what happens when God comes on the scene? The God who can see through the fig leaves. What did they do? Well, you know what they did. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Did God not know where they were? Sure. So why did God ask in verse 9, where are you? Isn't that interesting? Why did he ask, where are you? He was seeking a confession. For, for each other, we'll make fig leaves, won't we? But when God's concerned, we scramble to try to hide all of us because we know that God can see behind the mask. Nakedness is not the issue. The issue is shame. Notice the particulars in what's said in verse 9 through 11. The Lord God called to the man, said to him, Where are you? And, and he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
See, it's not that they have this fascination with nakedness all of a sudden. It's that now nakedness, because of sin, represents a deeper exposure. And so, who told you that you were naked? In other words, and then what's the next question? Have you sinned? Have you done what you know you shouldn't have? Why do you have this shame? And, of course, the text goes on to say, well, it was the woman that did this. She gave it to me. You pass in the buck. But the point is, when we are perceived by God as having this shame, we try to hide. You know that we feel shame not only from the sin that we do, but from the sin that's done to us. A person who is abused uh, feels shame because of what's done to them. You read of Amnon and Tamar in David's time. You read of Shechem and Dinah in the book of Genesis. The shame that these women felt as a result of being violated by these men. Anne Hesh, the actress, suffered abuse, you may or may not know, from the time she was a toddler, from the time she was 12 years old, she was sexually abused by her dad. And she said this, quote, I did a lot of things in my life to get away from what happened to me. I drank, I smoked, I did drugs, I had sex. I did anything I could do to get the shame out of my life. And what's sad is that we can feel the shame of what's done to us as painfully as the shame of what we ourselves have done. In fact, the shame of what's done to us tends to magnify the shame that we feel at our own sin, to where we feel we deserve it. This was done to me because I deserve it. And consequently, like Hesh did, she sought to relieve the pain by seeking some of the very things that caused it. How does the world tell us? Very clearly, we've got a problem now because we've all sinned. We all have shame. How does the world tell us to deal with shame? Melody Beatty had a best-selling book some years ago called Codependent No More. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you read it. And in it, it was very well received, and the answer that she felt to the problem of low self-esteem or the problem of needing other people or being controlled by other people is very simply this, that the answer to, to no longer being this way was just simply to love yourself more, to, have a, to build up your self-esteem. And, you know, we'll carry the same kind of logic into our elementary schools, to where our whole curriculum is built around building up a child's self-esteem just because they need to have self-esteem, not as a result of affirmation of something done well or whatnot, but just self-esteem for the purpose of self-esteem. And what society has essentially done is redefine shame. The shame that we have, we call it low self-esteem. We feel bad about ourselves. We don't have a good self-esteem. We don't like the way we are. And really, that's biblical shame. Biblical shame has been turned around and called self-esteem now. And we do this for a couple of reasons. One, because shame itself implies a problem with God. If you say, I have shame, that means you have a problem 
with the Lord. That implies sin, either something done to you or something you've done. But when we simply call it low self-esteem, then it becomes a problem between one another. How I'm perceived by other people, how I feel you're perceived toward me. Or it could simply be a problem that I have for myself. I just need to feel better about myself. And so what do we do? We do all we can to try to make ourselves feel better by doing all these accomplishments, making lots of money, getting a high education, doing everything we can to plant fig leaf seeds to cover our shame so that we are more focused on all the good that there is about us than the honesty behind the mask that is terrified and is ashamed. Norman Lamb once said, you meet a person who's always bragging, always talking about his own achievements, boasting of his attractiveness or intelligence or talent or wealth, and you know intuitively that you have just met a person who despises himself. What a fascinating insight. A person who's always talking about how great they are is trying to convince themselves that it's true. Adam and Eve's hiding from God as they put on these fig leaves shows us a politically incorrect but biblical principle that is this, that the cure for self-esteem is not found in yourself. The cure for self-esteem is not found in yourself. You can put fig leaves on all day long, but when God comes on the scene, you're still going to run and hide because you still have shame at the real you. The reason we have such a need for self-esteem is we try to cover our own nakedness, our shame, before God and man, with money, with respect, with being a good athlete, but none of it's sufficient. I was very interested last week to read about the trial of Winona Ryder. Uh, it reminded me of a quote that I read of hers last year. I, I saw the quote and I kept the article and what happened this past week reminded me of that article, and I pulled it back out because it's very relevant to what we're talking about today. And this is what she said in that article a year ago. She said this, quote, When I was 18, I was driving around at 2 in the morning, completely crying and alone and scared. I drove by this magazine stand that had this Rolling Stone magazine that I was on the cover of, and it said, Winona Ryder, the luckiest girl in the world, and there I was, feeling more alone than I ever had. You see, you can try to bolster self-esteem by feeding self. And all it does is magnify the shame that's there. A pursuit of self-esteem is simply a pursuit of self. And you can't escape it, whether you're on death row or whether you are at the top of Hollywood, you can't escape yourself. You've heard that saying that wherever you go, there you are. That's the problem. Wherever you go, there you are. But like Adam and Eve, there is a solution. The solution is not our own efforts, education, money, fig leaves. The, the solution is how God covers our shame. Skip down a little bit to verse 21 and look at what's written there. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Off with the fig leaves, off with your own effort that doesn't work. God sacrificed an animal. Blood was shed. 
and clothed Adam and Eve with skins. How did God make garments of skin? It required a sacrifice. Covered not only their physical nakedness, but also, and much more importantly to them, their spiritual nakedness through the death of a sacrifice. What he's done for Adam, he's also done for us. You know why we are afraid of revealing ourselves to one another? Because we don't want to be rejected. We want to be perceived as as strong, as, as godly, as spiritual. And so we don't share with one another who we really are. But you know, if you knew that there was a context of unconditional love, you would feel like you could share yourself, honestly. The Corinthian church had a big problem with loving unconditionally. Hence, we get the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Because they were not doing that. They were being selfish and having divisions. But notice, just look at the screen for a second, what the Apostle Paul wrote. What would happen if there was a context of unconditional love in the church? What would happen? Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24. Paul said, But if all prophesy, meaning the word of God is present, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called account to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. God's word is the means by which the secrets of a person's heart are disclosed. God's word tells it like it is. Adultery is wrong. Lying is wrong. Lust is wrong. God's word says it like it is. It calls a spade a spade. But the difference is, if you're confronted with that kind of truth in the context of unconditional love, then you can confess and say, yes, it's true, and you fall on your face before God. When you're confronted with that truth, and it's not the context of where you feel safe, what do you do? Up go the fig leaves to hide that shame. When you are able to have a context of unconditional love, then you can confess that and know that it will be forgiven. What God did for Adam, God has done for you. The truth is that only a crucified and resurrected Christ provides the potential both to reveal and to heal your shameful secrets. God alone covered Adam and Eve, their shame, and God alone can cover ours. Not through our own efforts, but only through this one way. Look at the screen at a great verse from Hebrews 12 that tells us that we are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising, notice, the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What shame is being referred to? It's the shame not only from Jesus not deserving it, uh, but it is the shame that was heaped on him that you and I deserve. It is your shame, it is my shame that he endured, that he despised. Since the guilt comes from sin, and the source of our shame is our sin, if our sin is removed, then guess what else is removed? Our shame. That we don't need to walk around with the fig leaves anymore because God has covered us with the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ.
But as the principle says here, it's really only the potential. God's provided the potential. The decision to let that shame go is yours. Peter wrote, and I love the way the New International Version translates it. He wrote, 1 Peter 2, in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, meaning Jesus, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The core of our shame is our sin, which Jesus Christ dealt with when he died on the cross. So what shame do you bring with you today that you've masked? What shame have you carried perhaps for years that you've masked? Maybe the shame of an abortion. Maybe the shame of an addiction. Maybe the shame of abuse. What shame are you covering through trying to bolster your self-esteem through all the great things that you've done to convince yourself you really are a good person. And this other thing was just a bump in the road. And yet it continues to be a burr under the saddle. What is that thing that you continue to drag like a bag of concrete? You know what? The cross of Jesus Christ simply tells us that that thing that you're dragging, Jesus Christ died for. And no longer, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, no longer does God look at you with that bag. But that bag is gone. You are covered because of what Jesus Christ has done. You are not naked and exposed in the sight of God. And so need not be in your own sight or feel like you need to have the approval of everybody else. Begin to let that thing go by realizing that Jesus took your shame and it is no longer yours to carry. I'm really excited about the rest of the series, both personally for myself as a recovering people pleaser, but also for you, because I know that every one of us struggles with this. And as we head into the holidays with family, family is a place that we wear so many masks. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much today for this refreshing look at ourselves, this refreshing look behind the mask. And each of us bring them in. We all have a past that we are ashamed of. And so, Lord, we come to you reaffirming the truth that we knew was true, but perhaps had never applied it to our shame. Lord, we, we offer it to you and thank you that you have taken our shame that which we feel so horrible about, and we can let it go. We can drive a stake in the ground on this day and move forward knowing that we no longer need to have shame because it has been removed when Christ died on the cross. Lord, bless this truth in our lives today and bless this series as we continue to conquer the giants in the land by fearing you more than fearing people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.